Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that it is your word, your speaking. Thank you that when we read it, particularly passages like this this morning, we're looking at real people living real lives, facing situations that, that we too can sometimes face. And so, Lord, we pray that you will indeed speak to us and that as we look at this passage, we will see how too you can be at work in our lives. Father, as Charlie has said already this morning, we want to be a church that helps and encourages and equips, supports one another as we live our lives for you, as we face whatever comes day by day. We want to do it together and not by ourselves. We thank you that you're with us, please, by your Holy Spirit, speak and change us to be more like your Son. Amen. We're continuing our series um, in this letter, thinking of Paul and his wonderful relationship with this really new young church as they face terrible trials and opposition, as they wait and look forward to the return of Christ. And in the midst of all that, Paul is defending himself. One of his trials is people attacking him to squash the gospel. And so we have this passage this morning. And when I was uh, a student at university in my first year, I remember reading a book called No Compromise. It was a biography of a guy called Keith Green. He was an American singer-songwriter in the 70s. I don't know if you know him. You've probably never heard of him, but you may have heard of his wife. His wife is the author of a song we sing, There is a Redeemer. She wrote that song. Well, she also wrote this biography of her husband, and she tells a story of their life together, their short life and their ministry. And as I mentioned, the book was called No Compromise. And as you read the book and you see the things they did, you realized, wow, they lived a life of no compromise, completely sold out for the Lord Jesus. Keith used his music and his songs to, to evangelize and often controversially use his concerts to get people to repent of their sins but one of the most powerful things that I read in the book was how the Greens opened up their home to, to all sorts of people, those who were in real need. They gave a safe place, a roof over the heads of, of drug addicts and of alcoholics, of prostitutes and homeless. And when their house got full, they bought the house next door and filled that. And then they rented five other houses on the same street, using them to, to house those who didn't have homes and those who were poor and weak and needy. Much, I'm sure, to the dismay of their neighbors, as you can imagine. But the lives of Keith and Melody Green were so inspirational. Their total commitment to serving God by helping other people. As I was reading, I was spiritually and emotionally encouraged, challenged and inspired. And then I re read how the book ended and Keith Green told his wife at the age of 28 that he'd felt that he'd done everything that God wanted him to do. And he was ready to go to heaven if God would call him home. And days later, Keith and his two eldest children were tragically killed in a plane crash leaving at home his wife, his youngest child, and one on the way. And as you can imagine, I was sobbing my eyes out as I was reading this book. 
And just at that time, as my eyes were filled with tears, my friend rang me on the phone. <laughs> and as in a broken voice, I tried to explain what was going on, he was afraid and so came round to see what was the matter. And when they saw I was just reading a book, <laughs> they sat on the chair while I embarrassingly finished the chapter. Although I came away from reading that book in awe of what God had done in their lives, I noticed that actually they were just normal people. They were just like you and me. They faced the ups and downs and the trials and the temptations, the struggles and the doubts, the opposition and the setbacks. But in that and through it all, God used them and changed them to then change and impact other people's lives as they supported people as they grew in faith. We've been looking at 1 Thessalonians and we've been taking a, a peek into the lives of this young church, their ups and downs, their trials and temptations. Ordinary people, even Paul is an ordinary man who went through trials, faced opposition. But as we read, we discover the grace of God at work doing incredible things. As we see, especially today, we see that Paul recognizes the real need for one another, that we can't face life by ourselves in isolation. God has given us the church to encourage and to support one another as we face those trials. So this morning is, is you are here in Oxford attending MRC. You are part of God's mission to build and grow the church. And he wants to use you. The church is the body, it's the family, we are brothers and sisters together. And we're all, we're all needed to play our part as we fight day by day the battles that we face. By investing ourselves in the lives of one another, we can see faith nurtured and grown and matured. Paul, Thessalonians are a great model of this, and I pray this morning that we too would be encouraged and challenged and inspired by them to help one another as we grow in faith. So let's see, first of all, the testing of faith. The testing of the faith. Paul, as we know, lived a life full of danger and activity and difficulty. Someone said to me this week that... Um, Paul never lived a boring life, did he? He went from one exciting experience or terrifying experience to the other. He faced opposition wherever he went, but Paul, he expected it. Remember back when he was converted on the road to Damascus, um, Ananias, who he met, said to him, Jesus has told you that you will suffer much for me. A troubled life he experienced, and so do we. Paul tells the Thessalonians here of his intense struggle, not just of the persecution, but of his concern for them. Read with me again from verse 17. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. If you remember uh, a few weeks ago, Dan summarized the events of Acts 17, where we 
learn of Paul's going to that, that church. And we saw that Paul, just in the, those three weeks or so, had preached the gospel. Many had become Christians, which was great. The church grew. But as a result of that, there was opposition. And there were some jealous Jews who formed a mob, and they caused a riot, which then caused Paul and Silas to have to leave the city. And one of the things that Paul is doing in this letter is defending why he did that. Because you could say, well, why has he run away? Why has he left these poor young Christians to fend for themselves? He, he preaches perseverance through trials, and yet at the first sight of them, he, he runs away. Is he a hypocrite? Well, we know from last week that Paul is someone, firstly, he was not afraid of suffering. He was not afraid of persecution. He told them, chapter 2, verse 2, that they'd been treated terribly in Philippi. But yet they continued on and came to Thessalonica, expecting that wherever they went, they would face persecution. But secondly, I think from these verses, we can see that Paul probably didn't want to leave. This was a young church, barely weeks old. He taught them many things, but of course there was still much for them to learn. And Paul describes this separation as like being orphaned. It's quite a strong word. His great affection for these people being taken away. Now for us, when we think about being orphaned, we think of the child losing, or the parent losing the... The, parent, the child losing the parent, sorry. But in those days, the same word could also be used for the parent losing the children. And we thought of Paul being the father and the mother last week, didn't we? That, that picture of him loving and caring for the people, encouraging them and, and giving them the food that they needed. Paul felt like he'd been orphaned, separated from these people. But then thirdly, Paul was separated, but he longed to get back. He tried and made every effort to try and get back to Thessalonica. Again and again, he says, I, Paul, even me, wanted to get back. But he couldn't. Paul knew, as he tells us in verse 4, that persecution would come. In fact, for them, it had already arrived. There would be struggles, there would be trials, there would be opposition. And Paul was afraid that these young Christians would fall away. And so if Paul wanted to get back so much, what was it that stopped him? And he tells us in verse 18 that Satan had blocked the way. He doesn't tell us exactly how Satan blocked the way. There's not really much help in Acts to know what happened or what could keep him from going back. Maybe it was an injunction against Paul and Silas that if they returned, they would be arrested. Maybe it was illness. People, some people suggest that. Whatever it was, Paul had made a plan, ready to go, but he couldn't make it. And he associated his trouble to Satan. Who is Satan? Well, he's not a man dressed in red with pointy horns and a pitchfork that you may see next week in Halloween. Satan is that fallen angel, the enemy of God, one who hates God. One who hates it when people become Christians and, and hates it when people like Paul tell people about Jesus. And so his ambition is to hinder and to stifle and, and make ineffective the, 
the preaching and the work that Christians do. Of course, he can't stop people from becoming Christians. He can't destroy the church. He's ultimately been defeated on the cross when Jesus died, conquering him. But like a wounded soldier, he fights on, doing what he can to try and damage God's mission. And so Paul is aware of that. And he fears that through the trials and temptations, the persecution this church is facing, that they may walk away. Good chapter 3, verse 5. He says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter, Satan, had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Now, we can't blame Satan for every bad and evil thing that happens. But in one sense, he does have influence over the affairs of people. And he uses various tactics to, to, to do what he wants to do. In the context of Thessalonians, he used these Jews, jealous Jews, to cause trouble, to cause a riot, to cause disturbance, to get rid of Paul and Silas. And Paul, Satan, uses similar tactics today. He wants to try and stop the gospel. And so as we face trials and temptations, as we face those difficulties, the temptation is that, that our faith will be weakened. His plan is that as we experience temptation, that we'll walk away from God. Or that we'll blame God. Or that we'll give up. When you think of the troubles, trials that you face, Many of them are probably very physical, practical things, things we can see and are tangible, and yet all of those trials and temptations always affect us in here, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our spiritual life. Difficulty at work, the, the business and the pressures and the deadlines, so much time focused on that that we, our time with the Lord drifts away. We listen to our colleagues and the, the questions and the oppositions they make, and we, and we wonder, well, maybe it is foolish to believe in this gospel. We face family difficulties, relationship problems, illness, stress at home, and we wonder, does God really care for my family? Disappointments, old age and illness, will God heal me from my illness? financial worries, future concerns, whatever it may be, all these things will have an effect on our faith, of our trust in God and of our wondering what he is doing. So let me ask you this morning, as you face the testing of your faith in various ways, how do you respond? How do you respond to trials? Do you blame God? Do you blame Satan? Does it cause you to withdraw from him, from others? Is it causing you to maybe give up? Don't forget the Lord Jesus also suffered troubles and temptations. He knows. He knows what you're going through. He knew the pressures of the world, the struggles, the darkness. Difficulties will come our way. The Bible never promises that the Christian life will be easy. 
If anything, it says that it will be more difficult. We fight against sin. We fight against the struggle that we have with opposition. But God says that you're not on your own. You don't do it in your own strength. God has given us help. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And as we thought about when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, that second half of it, we thought about praying that God would help us in those times, that he would not lead us into temptation, that he would deliver us from the evil one. And, and God wants to do that in your life. But he's also given us the church. He's also given us one another to help and encourage and teach and support as we go through trials. God uses the church family to do those things. And so when we suffer as Christians, the last thing we should do is to go away and walk away. As we fight the battle, if we do it on our own, then we're going to fail. Keeping ourselves in isolation from God and from one another will just make Satan succeed. Paul knew the importance of, of being with people and of helping people and of encouraging them. And this is why Paul wanted to go and visit the Thessalonians. So he was concerned for them and he wanted to be able to help them and equip them and support them. And that is what we can do as a church. We will be tested in our faith, but as we serve one another, we can nurture one another's faith. Think about that relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians. We've seen already how, how precious they were to Paul. He had that intense longing to try and get back. Why? Well, who were the Thessalonians to Paul? Well, he says that they were his glory and his joy. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul's passion for the Lord and his commitment to preaching the gospel is, is clear. The gospel of grace is what he preaches. And Paul never boasts in his own ministry. He always gives God the glory. He tells the Corinthians that if anyone must boast, let him boast in the Lord. He has a life dedicated and not to his own words and his own skills, but to fear and trembling under God's power, trusting in him and his Holy Spirit to make the difference in people's lives. But that doesn't stop him from being filled with great joy as he sees those who he has preached to become Christians. It doesn't stop him from looking forward to that last day when he will be for the Lord and he'll be standing with the Thessalonians by him and, and he can rejoice. Paul's place before God is purely by grace because of Christ. But Paul knows that on that day, the Thessalonians will be evidence, fruits of the life that he has lived. The Thessalonians for him are like an athlete's crown, the fruit of what he has done. And so his great hope is that on that last day, there won't only just be Thessalonians standing with him, but there will be countless Christians down through the ages, who are all standing there rejoicing God because of the faithful witness and ministry of people like him, but of people like us.
Paul really cared about these people. He actively tried to do all he could to get back. And that's quite challenging because we ask ourselves, do we have a similar concern and love for one another in Morden Road Church? Do we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Sharing that same level of longing that we grow in faith, that we support those who go through trial, that we overcome the temptations. I know that I'm not near there. I love you. But if the amount of time I, I give to pray for you shows anything, it shows that I don't love you enough. So how do we become a church like that? A church that's, that, like the Lord Jesus, is devoted to other people, to serving and helping those who are struggling and who are weak. Well, we don't have to be like Paul. We don't have to be a great preacher. We just need to be ourselves. We can do simple things like just taking an interest in one another's lives, being there, listening, praying, taking our eyes off of ourselves and our worries, even if they are big ones, and taking a look at those who are sat next to us and ask ourselves, how can I help them? As we talk together, as we get to know one another, how can we support of course, we can't get to know everybody in the church. It would take too long and we'd only get to the surface level, but we can get to know people deeper in, in small ways, in small groups, in a home group. If you're not in a home group, then I encourage you to become part of a home group where you can share your life on a more intimate level with those around you to support and encourage and pray. I'm sure those of you who are in home groups, you know how encouraging that is. You share prayer requests. And the next week, you can talk about how God answered those requests. And you can rejoice. Maybe you rub shoulders with different people in the church and the different activities that go on. How can we be there? It's not a job just for Dan or me, the elders or Kitty. It's something that we can all be a part of. Paul, even Paul, doesn't go by himself. He works in a team, and he, here he sends Timothy. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother, our co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ. We sent him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Timothy is this young, gifted man of God. He's a brother, a co-worker with Paul. And Paul sends him. He's not an apostle. He is a leader, but he's just a brother sent to encourage other brothers and sisters. One of the privileges of being a member of a church, like Tom and Ellie have done this morning, is that you become part of this clearly defined group of people who you have committed to and who have committed to you. A family. 
where there is love and care and support for you and that you do that to others. And it doesn't matter how old or young you are, how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how mature you are in your faith. All of us will face trials and temptations. All of us will struggle in different ways. All of us need strengthening in our faith. All of us need encouraging as we walk with God. We need one another. We need to pray. We need to lean on one another. So, so let's be a church that, that does that, that encourages, that inspires and helps. But let me tell you that although we should be a church like that more and more, those things already go on in Morden Road Church. There are those who go and visit people who can't come out of their homes. There are those who drop a phone call or send a text to people who are struggling. There are those who meet up regularly, one-on-one or one-to-two, and they look together at the Bible and see how can we be encouraged and how can we grow in our faith. God calls us to be a people who support and love one another. Of course, this love doesn't just stay within the church, but God calls us to spread that love to the world. We live with and we work with and we study with people around us who maybe don't know the Lord. And our concern is not for their faith, but that they would come to faith. They are, like we saw at the end of chapter 1, people who are under God's condemnation, facing that wrath that is coming. And when we think about where they are before God, that should cause a, a love in our hearts to want to tell them the gospel, to befriend people around us, to present to them Jesus, to live lives among them willing to be persecuted, willing to be laughed at, belonging to see God work in their lives so that they too would grow in faith. And so, friends, when that happens, when through the testing of our faith, we help one another to nurture, to encourage and build one another up, that then leads to maturity or maturing of faith. Look at verse 6. Timothy has just come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Facing trials and temptations in the Christian life can sometimes cause us to ask the question, is it really worth it? Paul was afraid of these Thessalonians. He was afraid that they would fall away, that all his work would be in vain. He struggled and longed to be with them. He wanted to get back. He longed to hear Timothy's report. And so when it came, it was a good report. 
a report of good news about their faith and their love. We thought about their faith and their love and hope in chapter 1. Timothy tells Paul that these guys are standing firm. In the face of the opposition, they're standing strong in faith. And they're filled with love. Love from God, love for one another. They were still facing temptation, still facing trials. But as they helped one another, as they remember the life that Paul lived, giving himself to them, as they received the encouragement from Timothy, they stood firm. They believed the word, the message. Chapter 2, verse 13. God's word came, and they received it as it actually is, the word of God. And so in the face of opposition, in the face of people telling them that this is rubbish and they should return to their old life, they stood firm, like a rock that doesn't move in the wind and the waves. They kept believing. They faced the temptations knowing that the life wouldn't always be like that. There would be a day when Jesus would return. So they waited. They waited in hope for the Lord Jesus to return. And so how did Paul respond? Well, Paul was encouraged. He says that in the midst of his distress and his persecution, he could breathe a sigh of relief. He could lift his head high and he could give thanks because it's God who is at work. It's God who is working in the lives of these Thessalonians. It's God who is maturing faith. As he uses us to encourage one another, he grows us. And we need encouragement. I always find it encouraging when I hear of people in the church who have stood firm in the face of trials. I give thanks for the teenager who was being asked hard questions at school and who didn't want to give in and so worked hard to find out answers to those questions so she could stand firm. I give thanks to those who have professed faith and have committed their lives to the Christ. We need those encouragements because we're living in a time right now when those things seem so rare in our country. I give thanks that God is working and, and building his church across the world. Maybe the church is struggling to an extent here, but it's growing in much of the world around us. And I give thanks for those who have endured illness of different kinds, but that have remained faithful to Christ. We need encouragement. As we face the temptations in our own lives, we need to be reminded that God is at work. Even Paul needed encouragement. He needed to know that the Thessalonians were okay. He says in verse 8, now we can really live. As if before he couldn't properly focus on his work, knowing what they were going through back there. But now he can breathe a sigh of relief. For being encouraged, he can continue on his mission. And so recognizing God is at work and giving thanks that God is at work is something that we too can do together. Not that we just share our prayer requests and pray for our needs, but that we share when God is at work and we can give thanks and we can encourage one another. It's very easy when we come to pray 
as we thought about in the Lord's Prayer, which is to bring our shopping list of needs and of things. But when we have time to give thanks, to recognize what God is doing, that builds us up. It matures our faith. And so as we finish, let's remind ourselves that God is at work in his people. He loves us and he cares for us and he wants to help us through the trials and temptations that we face day by day. And the wonderful thing is he's given us one another as part of how he does, how he brings us to maturity. So as we wait patiently for the Lord Jesus to return, let's live lives that point one another to Christ. So that when he returns, so that when we stand before the Lord Jesus, we together can rejoice. We can point to the examples of where people have helped us in our lives. And we too can point to the examples of where God has used us to bless other people. As brothers and sisters together, let's be used to grow and to build one another up in our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you know our daily struggles and temptations, the oppositions that we face in the world. And you promised that we would go through these things, but you also promised that we wouldn't be on our own. Thank you that you are not alienated from this, but the Lord Jesus has lived a life of trial and of struggle and of temptation. And that you, by your Holy Spirit, want to help us and equip us and to, to grow us and to mature us through our trials. But we thank you too that you've given us one another. And Lord, please, this morning we pray that you would help us to play our part. Help us to open our eyes to those around us to see the needs. Help us to be open and to be honest and to be vulnerable ourselves so people can hear of what's going on in our lives and can pray. We long to see the church grow and blossom and mature in faith, to be a real witness, to be a bright, shining light in the world around us that they see as they go through trials and struggles in their lives that, that the church the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the place to be. Please build a church for your glory. Amen.